All right. Well, happy 4th of July weekend, everybody. If you're one of our American listeners, if you're not one of our American listeners, happy not having to be America right now. Um, (laughs) This is the Damn Interesting Week podcast. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. Our first link comes from Thailand by way of The Guardian. Agence France Presse, I guess the French press, they report that we live in a cage. Residents hide as macaque gangs take over Thai city. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, yes. The monkeys have taken over and not only taken over. So basically what's happened is tourism is a major primary cash cow for Thailand. And ever since the pandemic hit, it's kind of dried up a bit. But one side effect of having so many tourists in Thailand, they have these setups where tourists can feed bananas to these macaque monkeys. Mm -hmm. And without all the tourists giving them bananas, which have now become sort of a staple of their diet that they've come to depend on, they have started to get snacks. <laughs> They're basically getting into chips, candy, and specifically sodas that have a ton of sugar, which is prompting a ton of breeding on their part. Oh, wow. And they are overrunning huh. the city. <laughs> they're, make, they're going on raids, basically. They're like, if you're not going to feed us, we're going to loot. It's exactly right. This is what the resource wars are a very common thing in all of the animal and plant kingdom. And we're starting <laughs> to see an effect of that. There was a social media video that went viral in March that showed hundreds of them brawling over food in the streets. <laughs> and they've basically doubled their population in three years. So there are wow. 6,000 of these monkeys running around this town in Thailand. Wow. The article notes that an abandoned cinema is now serving as their headquarters. <laughs> so they've like <laughs> taken over, a, a, you know, nobody's going to the movies right now. And so they don't have a lot to fear. And I'm sure they're probably raiding the concession stands on storerooms if they've been able to get into them. But a nearby shop owner has to display stuffed tiger and crocodile toys in an attempt to try to scare off the monkeys, who, as the article notes, regularly snatch spray paint cans from his store. What? What? Are they tagging? What are they doing with them? (laughs) It doesn't mention what they're doing with them. I mean, they have opposable thumbs. Maybe they're tagging. Maybe they're huffing. Who knows? But either way, it's not a good recipe for for what monkeys should have in their hands, right? Yeah. It's making me think of the scene in uh, Gremlins 2, where all the gremlins take over the movie theater. Like, that's how I imagine it must be. That's terrifying. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to know what movies they're watching in there. (laughs) I'm sure they can provide their own entertainment. You're imagining like monkey vaudeville shows, basically. Like, it's live entertainment. (laughs) So what the wildlife department officials have been doing is luring the animals into cages with fruit. They take them to a clinic where they're anesthetized, sterilized, and then they have a tattoo to mark that they've been neutered. The department has a long-term plan to build a sanctuary in another part of the city. They're anticipating some resistance from the human residents because, you know, <laughs> as, as one person from the wildlife department noted, quote, it's like dumping garbage in front of their houses and asking them if they're happy or not. So they know that they need to survey the people living in the area before they actually get this done. But the shop owner whose spray paint cans are getting stolen, he said that despite his daily joust with the creatures, he will miss them if they are moved. Quote, I'm used to seeing them walking around playing on the street if they're all gone i'd definitely be lonely (laughs) i guess you take what you can get you know i mean any socialization (laughs)
action. <laughs> right. And, you know, there is a lot of magic. If you've ever watched monkeys play or get into mischief, they're so human-like. It's really difficult to have very low emotional response to such majestic creatures. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing if, you know, you're giving them some chips or they're playing or being cute. But when they're having a 6,000 monkey brawl in the street, right. that feels like a little scarier. Like, I, I don't know how strong macaque monkeys are, but I know that even, like, never mind big apes. Even chimpanzees, which are much smaller than us, are still much yeah. stronger than we are. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like, if and they really organized, I feel like they could be a real threat. <laughs> yes, exactly. If they kind of figure, th- and they're basically, according to the pictures, they kind of look like they're the size of cats. But we okay. all know how much damage cats can do. You know, and they don't even have opposable thumbs. That's yeah. right. That's <laughs> right. Oh, I just realized what they're going to use the spray paint cans for. All you need is a flame source, and those are flamethrowers. <laughs> like, don't give him any ideas, Jennifer. Yeah, I'm sorry. In. I hope no Thailand macaques are listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. So this article comes from The Guardian, and it is called The Secret Government Agency Planting Cyanide Bombs Across the U.S., Delightful. Yeah, only slightly more sensationalistic than it actually is. (laughs) So the story goes, back in March 2017, there was a longtime detective in Idaho named Tony Manu. So he gets a call on his police radio, and they say that some kind of pipe bomb had exploded in the hills outside of Pocatello, Idaho, and the son of a well-known doctor was injured. So Manu was a detective with the county sheriff's office, and he was shocked because a pipe bomb in Pocatello? Yeah. Those sorts of things just don't really happen there, apparently. When he got to the home of Dr. Mansfield and his family, he found just a horrible scene. On the driveway outside of the house, the family's dog, Casey, (gasps) was dead. Aww. Uh, Yeah, inside the home, Canyon Mansfield, who was 14 years old and the youngest of three children, was sobbing. His head was pounding and his eyes were burning. He needed to go to the emergency room. Hmm. What had happened was that while playing in the woods behind the family home, Canyon and his dog stumbled upon this device that sprayed them in the face with a dose of sodium cyanide. Oh, what? (sighs) Yeah, the boy managed to quickly clean the poison out of his eyes, but the dog collapsed and starts convulsing. And so as the poor dog was just there dying on the hillside, Dr. Mansfield had wanted to give Casey CPR, but Canyon told him that if he did, he'd ingest the deadly stuff himself. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I think is quite smart for a 14-year-old kid who's currently, you know, having cyanide poisoning. So yeah. I thought that was Remarkably impressive. logical. He, he just read Romeo and Juliet in school is what happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, he knows how this story ends. Yeah. Uh, so it didn't take Detective Manu and his team of investigators long to uncover how it got there, uh, the so-called cyanide bomb was not actually the work of a rogue actor or a terrorist cell. It had been installed by a federal employee on official business, Ugh. the U.S. Wildlife Services. What are they trying to do with these cyanide bombs? Is it to deter certain kinds of wildlife? Yep, exactly. If you haven't heard of the U.S. agency that placed the bomb, you're actually not alone. It's actually operated for years in relative obscurity with limited oversight from Congress or the American public. It's housed in the Department of Agriculture, and it primarily works on behalf of private ranchers and farmers, killing Uh, coyotes, wolves, bears, birds. Yeah, I love that the department's called Wildlife Services as if they're serving the wildlife, which they're absolutely not. They're just out there to murder them. No, absolutely. In 2018, it exterminated nearly 1.5 million animals and a huge number of invasive animals as well. 
Uh, sometimes its agents will shoot wolves or coyotes from helicopters. Uh, sometimes they employ leg traps and snares. And sometimes they place poison devi- devices on public and private land. And these are M44s, which are known as cyanide bombs. And they're baited and spring-loaded tubes that will spray an orange plume of cyanide powder when triggered. They killed 6,500 animals in 2018 as well. But that's insane. I mean, these, okay, if you're in a helicopter shooting at coyotes, it's weird and a little gratuitous, but it, you know that you're aiming at a coyote. If you just put a cyanide bomb out in the woods, you like, get I mean, little kids and their pet dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Canyon's mother, Teresa Mansfield, has this quote. The United States government put a cyanide bomb 350 feet from my house and killed my dog and poisoned my child. Wow. Yes. So now, more than three years later, she and her husband are actually in the midst of a legal and political campaign to hold the government accountable and ban the use of cyanide bombs nationwide. Good Good for her. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So Congressman Peter DeFazio of Oregon, who's been a longtime critic of wildlife services, has described the agency as more secretive than the Department of Homeland Security. What? Hmm. He said that the agency, which has a century-long history and roughly 2,000 employees, is highly decentralized, and state offices like the one in Idaho basically run themselves with little transparency or accountability to elected officials in Washington. Even local law enforcement agencies are sometimes unaware of just the extent of the agency's activities in their own jurisdictions. Jeez! Uh, The agency has supporters, uh, including several influential agricultural organizations, you know, no surprise there. The American Sheep Industry Association has called the M44 a critical tool that has a proven track record of protecting livestock and the environment. They (laughs) did decline to comment on the Mansfield case to Hmm. The Guardian. They only provided a link to a webpage in response to numerous questions concerning M44s. So I actually checked out this webpage, and it's full of huge amounts of information on toxicity and how you might expect the M44 to perform in certain scenarios and also how likely it is or isn't to kill you and, you know, how long (laughs) they've been using it, blah, blah, blah. Lots of stuff like that. It's not a particularly comforting document. No. But I mean, if you're blowing cyanide all over the place, doesn't that remain in the soil? Does it break down? Is it going to affect plants? Is there like a long half-life on its activity? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't actually know. The Guardian article doesn't go into that in detail. But ever since the poisoning, the Mansfields have been waging a crusade of sorts against wildlife services and its killing practices, including filing a lawsuit against the agency in federal court in Idaho. They're seeking monetary damages, a public apology, and above all else, a ban on cyanide bombs nationwide. Yeah, that seems like a really common sense thing. Like, I don't think anybody would hear cyanide bomb and be like, no, that's a reasonable thing to have in your backyard. Without any awareness that it's even being placed in your backyard. That's what really kind of just blows my mind here. Yeah, absolutely. The agency does seem to be keenly aware of the rising tide of anti-cyanide bomb sentiment. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) After the Manfields traveled to Washington to meet lawmakers, the agency's top official in Idaho sent news coverage of the visit to his colleagues. And public concern about wildlife services practices have been growing for years. According to a list of incidents compiled by the environmental group Predator Defense, roughly 40 domestic pets have been killed by M44s across the country since 2000, and numerous humans have been exposed. But Mansfields and their allies in the wildlife conservation community do seem to be moving the needle. So in response to the Pocatello incident in 2017, wildlife services agreed to impose a moratorium on the use of M44s in Idaho. And last year, Oregon actually became the first state in the nation to pass a law that totally bans M44s within its boundaries. 
All right, well, it's a start. We got one out of 50. Now we just need the rest. Yeah. So in May 2019, DeFazio and uh, a Republican congressman, Matt Gates, actually reintroduced a bill, which they dubbed Canyon's Law, after Canyon, that seeks to ban cyanide bombs nationwide. Jeff Wait, Merkley, Matt Gates, the G- G-A-E-T-Z? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that guy. Okay, I mean, credit where it's due, I guess. (laughs) Unless it's getting replaced with something even more lethal and high-tech and expensive that fuels the military-industrial complex. Yeah, there's always that chance. Just (laughs) just move straight over to frag grenades, you know, while we're at it. Just go full on America. But unfortunately, some of these efforts are actually running up against inertia under our new administration. No, really. M44s are continuing to be used in roughly a dozen states across the nation. And in December 2019, the EPA actually reauthorized the use of cyanide bombs nationwide, and Canyon's Law is currently stalled in Congress. <sighs> yeah, while legally these things are getting stalled, public sentiment is shifting away from these sorts of lethal predator control practices that Wildlife Services embodies, and the Mansfield case was really the game changer and tipping point for this entire discourse. Canyon Mansfield still sometimes feels sad and guilty over the loss of Casey. He gets the occasional crippling migraine, as well as a strange numbness in his hands that he did not experience before his exposure to sodium cyanide. But as he prepares to head to college next year, he is certain that his family will prevail. He says, we're going to find a way to keep wildlife services up at night until we get this done. Yay. Good for him. Yeah. We need more people like Canyon who say enough is enough. That's hard. Ideally, without having to be like permanently health affected by the results of something like this. Right. It would be nice if we could it just, would be nice. you know, not have a tragedy before we change our minds on cyanide uh, bombs. But <laughs> uh, I'll be waiting for that in a long time. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. So you guys are probably aware of the sort of wine snob factoid that champagne isn't really champagne unless it's from the Champagne region of France, Uh, right? Yes, that's been Mm -hmm. good meme fodder. That's right. So the legal term for that sort of thing is a protected designation of origin or PDO. The fancy term for it is terroir, the taste of a particular geography. And Mm -hmm. turns out that that also applies to a certain degree to cheddar. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what this article from General Smith at CNN Travel is about. It's called Cheddar Empire, Rise of a Cheese Superpower. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Because we all love cheddar. It's very popular. And it sort of goes into why is it the dominant cheese? I mean, there's thousands of types of cheese out there. Why is yeah. it that cheddar just wins everybody's heart? So the PDO actually is not just the word cheddar. In uh, the surrounding area of Cheddar, England, The designation is West Country Farmhouse Cheddar. You cannot put that label on your cheddar unless it comes from this area. And the thing that makes this area supposedly unique is they have these limestone caves, which serve as natural refrigerators during the aging process. So that's sort of their claim to fame. And they've got the old world techniques down, which obviously a lot of modern cheddar producers aren't using. They said the region started producing cheese since at least the 12th century. But cheese back then was not really what we think of as cheese today. It was more like kind of a curds and whey cottage cheese soft Mm. product. The modern concept of cheese really started to come around in the 17th century when they invented these wooden presses and a cooking stage was introduced. And that's when it became the firm product that we know of as cheese today, right? Hmm. The main reason, of course, for introducing these technologies was that it made less moisture and you could make a larger wheel size, which meant that it Mm. could ship farther, Mm. most especially to the very fashionable London. That was Mm. the really big beginning of food shipping at that time was this idea of we can get it out of our village and get it somewhere Mm -hmm. even slightly farther away. 
Huh, so was Cheddar, like, one of the first villages to do this, essentially? Yeah, I mean, they, they had all of the different villages making their own cheeses, and the Cheddar region was one of the earlier ones to say, we know how to make this more durable. And so they kind of got mm. at the beginning of the market, and it just, you know, took over. Everybody in London loved it, because they don't have a lot of cows in downtown London, so cheese is a luxury <laughs> that has to be brought in. Then, of course, story of the world, Cheddar got to the rest of the world through colonists, right? They took it with them everywhere. They had a cheese scientist, which I did not know was a thing, and I now have a new life goal. <laughs> his name is Paul Kinstedt of the University of Vermont, and his quote was, wherever the English go, cheddar reigns. They took cool. it to every wow. colony, and he said, actually, it's really easy to determine which of the colonies became dominant white people and which ones did they fail to sort of displace the native populations? Because in places like Quebec, where the French immigrants took hold, even today, French cheeses are still preferred. Huh. Cheddar never huh. took off in India or Kenya or some of these other colonies where the British were there, but they were really just sort of in a minority ruling position. They didn't mm -hmm. slaughter and displace all the natives. Thank goodness. But in <laughs> Canada and Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., anywhere that, you know, the white people took over... Cheddar is currently king even to this day. And huh. in fact, it became super popular in the U.S. because we had so much more land. We could do so many more cows. In 1875, the U.S. surpassed England and started exporting cheddar back to England. At, <laughs> yeah. And at that point, they were exporting 100 million pounds a year. And it just... Whoa. Yeah. And that was in 1875. I mean, it just kept growing. America was the dominant cheddar force for a long time. <laughs> And the article actually talks about how just in somewhat recent years, cheddar's dominance fell. There is a new cheese that took the crown in 2006. It was Who is it? mozzarella. Nice. Ah. And that's largely due to America's appetite for frozen pizzas. Yeah. <laughs> I see that. Yeah. Wow. So the frozen pizza industry basically completely flipped everything through mozzarella from a, a an Italian cheese that was maybe sometimes used but not so much into just the absolute top slot where it has been to this day. And the flip side of that is that these sort of artisanal flavors and old school processes have been on the rise as sort of luxury cheeses, right? People are starting mm. to get more interested in less mass-produced cheeses. And it's ironic because, of course, the original reason for cheddar was to make this marketable shelf-life product. And now right. people are like, no, no, I want to go back to the farm in Cheddar, England and get like this cloth-wrapped, artisanal, delicious cheese that's going <laughs> to, you know, rot very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if New York has the same sort of thing because I know like New York super or extra sharp is a thing. They may have their own, what is it, the PDO, P-O-D? Oh, yeah. Well, the PDO is like a legal designation of what you can call it, but definitely mm -hmm. every different area has different bacteria. Right. Because that's kind of what actually makes it all. It all starts as milk. The thing mm -hmm. that makes it into different flavors and different types of cheeses is the type of bacteria that you're using to ferment it. And mm. just like I mean, it's a living thing. Different environments, different climates are going to produce different cultures. Right. And mm -hmm. some cultures simply are not going to thrive in other environments. You're not going to be able to make a particular type of cheese, even if you go and get that bacteria and bring right. it to Arizona. It's not going to live. Right. So mm. you Arizona cheese. Mm -hmm. mm. <laughs> and some of those bacterial cultures become imperialists, apparently. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
Uh, have you guys been suffering from this Saharan dust storm that's been kind of settling all over the U.S. and Texas? No. I've been inside, so no. I haven't even that's, paid yeah. attention to this. Oh, yeah. it's It's been a thing, and I think this year it's had an especially heavy one. Um, there's a great article from The Atlantic from Sabrina Embler. A giant dust storm is heading across the Atlantic, but dust from the Sahara can fertilize faraway lands and seas. So the superstorm is kind of a mixed blessing. So we're basically, every year we get about 182 million tons of dust that leave the Sahara. And that's basically enough to fill about 689,000 semi-trucks. It's Whoa. a lot of dust, y'all. Yeah. Wow. And they basically, uh, this kind of cloud of dust can make up what they're terming the greatest annual migration on the planet. It's not an animal migration, but a mineral one. Just in terms of sheer scope and size. So basically, you know, it starts in the Sahara. The windstorms basically levitate these huge plumes of desert dust and they go thousands of feet above the surface of the earth. And then they just hitchhike on trade winds traveling west across the Atlantic Ocean and Caribbean Sea. And the way that the dust falls and settles in the ocean, as well as rainforests and, you know, sometimes on our cars. So if you do go outside (laughs) and go to your car and see it really dirty, that might be why. But the one that's happening right now over the Caribbean and heading towards the United States and since the time of the publication of this article has hit the United States, it's unusual for a Saharan dust cloud, both in terms of volume and density. A researcher at the University of Puerto Rico notes, it's the most dust we've seen in 50 or 60 years, which, you know, sounds on par for the kind of year that we're having. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And it definitely triggers a lot of asthma. It can irritate throats and lungs, which is a delightful thing to experience while we're in the middle of a respiratory pandemic, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's not all bad. Because there are so many minerals like iron and phosphorus in the dust cloud, it happens to fertilize some of the most biodiverse oases on the planet including the amazon rainforest wow so i i had no idea that there are minerals in i mean if you think about it, it makes sense but you don't think of sterile seeming desert dust <laughs> as being essential to neighboring uh, ecosystems right you don't think neighboring the- is a stretch i think if we're talking about the sahara to the amazon i mean these are going off across entire oceans mm-hmm. yeah and i mean i guess these nutrients and minerals come from an ancient time when the sahara was a little more fertile and the weather there wasn't quite as dry as it is now. But I mean, how does that portend for like, if the water ever does return, I guess the winds would also change at that point. And so it's all up in the air. But it feels like it's stripping nutrients from a place that really can't afford to lose anymore anyway. <laughs> well, it may be that the nutrients are not necessarily being utilized because there's not a lot of plant material mm-hmm. in the Sahara Desert. Mm-hmm. There are some negative effects of it happening over the ocean, however. So there are sea creatures that do enjoy the precious minerals, including, unfortunately, algae. So Mm. algae loves this kind of dust. It becomes a banquet for red tides, which is when blooms of algae spill into the ocean like dye. They deplete it of oxygen and then eventually release toxins. So dust clouds can also host unwelcome stowaways because they carry a diverse community of microorganisms, some of which have the potential to be plant pathogens. Or human pathogens. Oh, good. Womp, womp. That's what we <laughs> need. <laughs> yeah, and some scientists are even suggesting that the dust storms can carry fungal spores or bacteria that can spread diseases and corals. I'm never going outside ever. It's <laughs> <laughs> just it. Right, but it's, it's not all bad. It's not all good. You know, even though it can spread diseases and corals, sometimes the seasonal sprinkling of Saharan dust can actually feed the corals encrusting the Bahamas, which are surrounded by waters that lack these nutrients that are required to create such an oasis. 
basis. So it's a mixed bag, but humans obviously do not thrive in enormous dust plumes. It poses a significant hazard to public health. You should already be wearing a mask if you're going outside. If the pandemic isn't a good reason, think of the Saharan dust. Well, I mean, like you said, it seems like it's something that happens every year and the ecosystem Mm -hmm. thrives on it. It's just that this year we happen to be getting a really big extra dusty dust storm. Exactly. And it does yield some really beautiful sunrises and sunsets. Um, I know that in, you know, Southern California, where you've got a lot of smog and pollution, that kind of accounts for a lot of the rainbow watercolor sunsets and sunrises that you see. The Saharan dust can do the same thing. So like everything in nature, it is pretty much lawful neutral. It just (laughs) does the thing. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, but it's all part of a system that we're still learning about. And it could rejuvenate the uh, car wash industry. I mean, they're suffering right now, too. So, you know, that might be (laughs) useful for them. (laughs) The booming, booming car wash industry. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes from popularmechanics.com, and the title is It's Hard to Poop on the Moon. NASA... Sorry. Wants you to make it easier. Yay! Well, that's nice of them. I mean, they've got their heart in the right place, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Their heart, you say. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry. (laughs) No, I I expected this with this article. Uh, The subtitle to this one is, Have a good space toilet idea? It needs to hold 500 grams of diarrhea. Oh, good. (laughs) You know, it's nice to have your parameters. As any project manager can tell you, you need to know what the expectations are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Think about how they got to that number, too. Yeah, this one has quite good requirements that's listed at the end. So essentially, NASA is is hosting a contest uh, (laughs) for your toilet ideas that will work in space. So NASA plans to return to the moon. Uh, We do know which rocket the astronauts will launch on, what capsule they'll be cramped in, and how they might land on the lunar surface. But there's one critical mystery NASA still has yet to solve. How will they poop? So... (laughs) Enter the Lunar Loo Challenge. I oh. think that's the official name. Wow. Yeah. You got to brand it. I mean, if you're outsourcing for basically, are they offering any kind of compensation or monetary reward for the winner? They are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. NASA's Tournament Labs and Human Landing System program has partnered with a Kickstarter-like platform called HeroX to sponsor a competition. These astronauts will be eating, drinking, and subsequently urinating and defecating in microgravity and lunar gravity. Like While astronauts are in the cabin and out of their spacesuits, they will need a toilet that has all the same capabilities as ones here on Earth. Apollo-era astronauts famously hated their toilet systems. The Apollo fecal containment device was essentially just a plastic bag that the crew would have to strap to their butts. <laughs> and yeah, Sorry. once they deposited their waste, the bags were either stored on the spacecraft or left just on the lunar surface, which I did not know. So apparently there's just poop on the moon. Just bags uh, of it in everywhere. Bags. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Uh, During one mission, the poop actually escaped. So during the 1969 Apollo 10 mission, Commander Tom Stafford had to quickly take care of a stinky situation. Uh, He said, give me a napkin quick. There's a turd floating through the air. (laughs) And that's on official, like, recorded transcripts of astronaut interactions. Of course. Yeah, 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 it's got to be. It's got to (laughs) be. During the first space shuttle mission in 1981, astronauts had to unclog the smelly toilets, making for a messy scene. 
frozen urine flushed on the Russian Mir space station actually damaged the station's solar panels over time, which reduced their effectiveness by around 40%. Oh. Yeah. So fortunately over the years, NASA and the other space agencies have gotten a better handle on the business of going number one and number two. On the ISS, urine is sent through a network of hoses and is eventually recycled into drinking water. (laughs) Feces collected aboard the ISS are sucked into a canister, which is then shot back to the Earth, but it does burn up in the atmosphere, Mm. so you don't have to worry about that. But now it is time for a new generation of space toilets. So NASA's (laughs) already working on a brand new toilet design called the Universal Waster Management System. They have several design and performance specifications that must be met before NASA can let the new Lou loose on the moon. (laughs) So it has to be able to accommodate the waste of two astronauts for at least 14 days. It has to work in both microgravity and lunar gravity. Mm -hmm. It cannot use more than 70 watts of power. It cannot be smelly. Ah. It has to hold all sorts of waste, including urine, feces, vomit, diarrhea, and menstrual blood. Bonus points will be awarded to designs that can capture vomit without requiring the crew member to put his or her head in the toilet. (laughs) So like a a funnel. They want like a vomit funnel attachment. Yeah, like a little nozzle, I guess. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. It has to accommodate both men and women, naturally. It has to be able to flush properly. It has to be quick and easy to clean because you don't want to be spending time hovering over the toilet with a scrub brush when you could be exploring the moon. Right. It has to be able to flush 500 grams, which is about two cups of diarrhea in one sitting. (laughs) And it has to be quiet, no louder than 60 decibels. Fair. NASA says it's already working on ways to adapt current designs, so submissions have to be different from what's already on the ISS. And in order to be seriously considered, it has to be simple and efficient. Hmm. So this isn't actually the first time that NASA has crowdsourced this particular problem. In 2017, the agency also launched its Space Poop Challenge, which requested help on designed toilets to be used while astronauts are strapped to their seats. Hmm. The Lunar Loo Challenge itself, the one they're doing now, is split into two categories. Technical, which is open to adults and junior. They want to encourage the next generation of space explorers, engineers, and scientists, and they know that students might think about this design problem without the same constraints as adults, especially because, you know, children Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. pooping. (laughs) So the junior category will accept submissions from students 18 and younger. There is a $35,000 grand prize Mm. for the technical category, which will be split among the top three designs with $20,000 going to first place, $10,000 to the second place, and $5,000 to the third place. They'll also receive a behind-the-scenes tour of NASA's Johnson Space Center and will have an opportunity to meet with NASA engineers and possibly an astronaut, but no promises, apparently. (laughs) They're Uh, busy. You know, they've got a busy schedule. Yeah, they got a lot to do. Uh, The top three winners of the junior competition won't be eligible for the cash prize, but will walk away with some street cred and a NASA t-shirt, which I think is kind of bogus, but whatever. I mean, there must be like a legal liability thing for why they can't give money to the kids, but I feel like today's kids are smart. If you give them money, they'll perform. A t-shirt is not going to win over anybody. Yeah, yeah. Today's children are very well aware of what the jig is with capitalism. Yeah, Yeah. capitalism's no great secret. However, a t-shirt would make for some pretty sweet likes on the gram. So I could see maybe sort of a double hitter being attractive enough for the kids. Yeah, but in that case, it's going to have to be like a limited edition something because you could buy a NASA t-shirt online. I happen to know. Fair. (laughs) It's not a rare commodity. (laughs) Well, I think they're really targeting that very large, you know, engineer influencer subset of Instagram. Right. Mm-hmm. All the engineering nerds on the gram. Who are like, I mean, yeah. they're there. They're there. 
Uh, so the deadline to submit your materials, which is a PDF explaining how the toilet works and a neutral 3D CAD file, is August 17th, 2020 at 5 p.m. Eastern. Judging will close on September 22nd, 2020, and the adult winners will be announced on September 30th at 2 p.m. Eastern, and junior winners will be announced on October 20th. So if you're listening and you feel inspired, uh, you could check out the Lunar Lou Challenge. Yeah, I feel like if one of our listeners does end up submitting to this challenge and winning, like, I, I think we need a shout out. Like, we spread the word. We're not going to design any toilets ourselves because we don't have that capability. But I think, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, we encourage you all to enter. Absolutely. And then hit us up when you yeah. win. <laughs> <laughs> no demonstration videos, please. No, not necessary. We can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. So we all remember the very tragic, sad thing that happened in 2006 when Pluto stopped being a planet, right? Sigh. It was so sad. But though it was controversial, it really was the right decision. I'm probably making some enemies by saying that. But the facts are (laughs) Pluto is two-thirds the size of our moon. It's very small. And at that point, they had already discovered a number of other dwarf planets like Eris, which were bigger than Pluto. So basically, unless we were prepared to have a dozen extra planets... Pluto had to go. Yeah, I think astrology would just have a hissy fit if we had that many new planets kind of mm-hmm. bat- into the canon, right? Yeah. No. It, it... Oh, no. We use Eris. We're ahead of y'all. Yeah. <laughs> right. So ever since then, we've had only eight planets in our solar system, but we might be getting a new <gasps> planet nine after all. Ooh. There is something out there, and it is big. So... Ever since Pluto's demotion, they've still, you know, been paying attention to these dwarf planets. They've been studying their orbits. They've been categorizing. They've been adding new dwarf planets as they discover them. And all of them have something weird going on with their orbits. They have these huge elliptical orbits that are not symmetrical. So they don't go evenly around the sun. They get really close and then they swing way back out again every time they go around. Hmm. And when I say way out, I mean like way out. Distances in this case are measured in astronomical units or AU. One AU is the distance from the Earth to the sun. So Neptune, the farthest real planet, as far as we know, is 30 AU out. But one of the closest of these weird elliptical objects, which is nicknamed Biden because its official name is VP113 and it was discovered during Obama's presidency. So for VP, they nicknamed it Biden. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Biden is 80 AU at its near side and 440 AU at the farthest. Right. So these things are swinging way, way, way out there. There's another one called Sedna, which swings from 76 AU all the way out to 937 AU. And the Goblin, which is a really big one that's way out there, goes three times farther out than that. And basically, all of these orbits mathematically confirm with each other, and they basically show that there must be something farther out there that is gravitationally dragging their orbits to the side, right? It's not enough to get captured, but it's enough to kind of pull them farther away from the sun, and then they make their way back to the sun again. And Mm -hmm. based on how far out they're going, it has to be something big. They estimate that it's between 2 and 15 times more massive than the Earth on an orbit that stretches itself as far as 1,500 AU away from the sun, which on the Uh, one hand is very, very far out, right? But on the other hand, the nearest star is still 300,000 AU away. So there's no question that this thing is orbiting the sun. It's in our solar system. It's hanging out. It's just really, really far out there compared to everything else we know. And the main problem with this whole hypothesis that they're building about this hypothetical planet nine out there is that a planet that far out just really shouldn't be that big. If our understanding of how planets form is correct, they should generally be getting smaller the farther out you go. And for a big planet to be that far out, 
there have to be some extra coincidental factors in play, like maybe it was forming close to Saturn and Jupiter and then accidentally got flung outward and lost. But they've said even that, like the gravitational dynamics, you can make a model where that happens, but it's very, very unlikely. Mm. So there is a competing theory that maybe instead of a planet nine way, way out in the reaches of space, there's actually a black hole. And if it's a black hole, that's very exciting because, A, it's relatively very close to us, which is terrifying, but terror is exciting. Mm -hmm. Also, (laughs) uh, it would fit into a particular category of black holes that we think should have formed at the very beginning of the universe, but we've never found one. So if we found one, it would almost certainly be of this type of black hole, and that would be exciting. I don't really understand all of the nuances of what we would know if we found Mm -hmm. this thing that is almost definitely out there, but... Either way, we are getting an answer in the next couple of years, for sure, because the biggest telescope ever made, called the Rubin Observatory, is about to come online later this year. Right now, our best telescopes take months or even years to scan the entire night sky, and then they have to do it again and again in order to track changes of what they're seeing, right? So even though Mm -hmm. we sort Uh of know where Planet Nine ought to be, we've never been able to see it, just because it's too the sky's too big. We can't see everything. But... The Rubin Observatory is going to be able to scan the whole sky in just three nights. What? Yeah. It's an amazing improvement on telescope technology. It's very cool. And, of course, everybody's very excited for it. There's a ton of people, you know, signing up for time on the telescope. It's going to be a while. But they estimate in the next two to three years we're going to know. We'll either have a new Planet Nine, and then we'll have to crowdsource the naming of it on some sort of internet poll, or (laughs) we'll have a black (laughs) hole, which is terrifying in its own way. So it'll be exciting. Yeah, I mean, honestly, just listening to this, even Planet Nine, let alone a black hole, the idea of something that big being so relatively close to us is kind of spooky. I don't know why. Yeah, but super on brand for this time in our life, isn't it? Very true. That's right. Well, and it just, I think, underscores the fact that, like, for all that we know, we don't know anything. I mean, a whole new planet that we're not even aware of at this stage in our astronomical development seems insane to me. That there could, yeah. there's something out there and it's super close and we still haven't even figured out that it exists. So humbling. Yeah. And if it's a black hole, you know, maybe wormholes are next. Maybe this is how we get faster than light travel. You know, a, a girl can dream. Like <laughs> Optimism. That's right. <laughs> I, think, I think we're overdue for some. And Planet Nine, I think we can see it as a hopeful thing. Or it has an aggressive life form on it and we're all going to die. You know, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Either way, we'll get answers, like you said. That's right. We like information. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Do y'all remember the uh, Monkey Jesus art restoration that was botched uh, earlier in, I think, the decade, right? Yeah, it was like- Or the Monkey mm -hmm. Christ. It was like an old lady in Italy who couldn't really see, who was like, I'll just touch up this old painting, and she made it insane. Pretty much. It was uh, the Monkey Christ incident happened eight years ago. Uh, Basically, she had no qualifications. She was just a devout parishioner. And she tried to restore a painting of the scourged Christ on the wall of a church on the outskirts of the northeastern Spanish town of Borgia. You can probably picture it in your mind right now where he's got his head tilted and he's got that sort of look to him. Well, now experts are calling for regulation after the latest botched art restoration again in Spain. This is an epidemic, you guys. As Sam Jones in Madrid is reporting to The Guardian, 
a copy of the Immaculate Conception painting by Murillo has been reportedly cleaned by a furniture restorer. And what? it's got a series of pictures that show the before and after, which are just as horrific. Wow. Yep. So, I mean, he was actually supposed to be doing it. Somebody said to him, hey, let's get this guy. He's a good painter. Well, I mean, I, that may not have been the thought process, but a <laughs> private art collector in Valencia, he was reportedly charged 1,200 euros by Whoa. a furniture restorer to have the picture of the Immaculate Conception cleaned. And the article was careful to update that this was a copy of the original painting. Mm. But it was still a painting. It was still a copy. Forgeries can sometimes be as beautiful as the original. And it was clearly old, which is why it was neat and rest restoration, but the job did not go as planned, and the face of the Virgin Mary was left unrecognizable despite two attempts to restore it to its original state. So because this has inevitably resulted in comparisons with the monkey Christ thing, conservation experts in Spain are calling for a tightening of the laws covering restoration work because this is embarrassing, y'all. Yeah, it shouldn't (laughs) be allowed to happen. I mean, they should just recognize that this is a problem. No. As uh, Fernando Carrera, a professor at the Galician School for the Conservation and Restoration of Cultural Heritage, quotes, I don't think this guy or those people should be referred to as restorers. <laughs> Let's be honest. They're bodgers who botch things up. Oh. They destroy things. <laughs> <laughs> so colorful. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, the law as it is right now, it allows people to engage in restoration projects even if they lack the necessary skills. He adds, can you imagine just anyone being allowed to operate on other people or someone being allowed to sell medicine without a pharmacist license or someone who's not an architect being allowed to put up a building? <laughs> yeah, he's got a he notes, yeah, I mean, obviously he notes that these are far less important than doctors, but the sector still needs to be strictly regulated for the sake of Spain's cultural history. And this is particular to Spain because they've had a huge amount of cultural and historical heritage because of all of the different groups that have passed through the country over the centuries that leave behind their marks and their monuments and their artistic artifacts. At the risk of speculating wildly, it sounds like there's probably something else going on under this story, like maybe some nepotism or something. <laughs> Because it sounds like none of these people have either ever painted anything or have never interviewed anybody. Because I actually saw the photo of this uh, because it does look like whoever did this quote unquote job used furniture polish on it. It's that bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically they the way that it's been redone, nothing about it even remains likely. I mean, like the whole shape of the hair is different. The eyes are upturned in the first one, but the face shape is completely different and has lost all the dimension. And then the third attempt is just the eyes are not even even. I mean, they're totally amateurish. And obviously, they're just bad decisions and maybe not enough access to people who are painting restorers. And it's probably Mm -hmm. prohibitively expensive for, you know, local churches and the like. But for private art, collectors like the case of this guy you know if you can afford even a copy of a great work protect your investment go with someone who's licensed or credited yeah i mean i'm i'm imagining that basically there was maybe some dirt or some aging on it and he basically said i want you to clean it and the furniture restorer went and just stripped all the paint off like there's just no painting anymore and so he sort of tried to save himself by like repainting it on there but then that does not explain the second restoration job (laughs) like (laughs) once the private owner has seen it and said oh wow buddy you messed up like, why would you try again? That seems... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it out of their hands, go to a professional, mm-hmm. or, you know, just repaint it. If it was a copy, pay a forger to just right. repaint the whole dang thing from scratch and give an art person some income right That's now. That's right. My gosh. They need the job. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
This is a short little one, also from The Guardian, and the title is One in a 50 Million Chance, Woman with Two Wombs oh. Carrying a Twin in Each. Oh, what? that sounds uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, aside from the astronomical yeah. statistics of it, no, that sounds awful. Yeah, so apparently Kelly Fairhurst also found out about her uterus condition when she went in for a 12-week scan. <laughs> oh, so that's not alarming. Know. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> So she's a 28-year-old woman who only learned that she had uterus didelphus, which is a condition where a woman has two wombs, uh, when she went in for that 12-week scan. She was also told that she was carrying twins, one in each womb. The twins could be identical. The condition itself is quite rare, but they went on to tell me that it was a 1 in 50 million chance for me to conceive twins in each womb, she told the son. Wow. I mean, I, yeah. I, I can so, see fraternal because if you've got two eggs and you, they just each come down and you've got two pregnancies started at the same time, but identical would mean that an egg was somewhere and it split and then it somehow got to one to each side. Yeah. Fairhurst, who was also surprised to be told that she had two cervixes, already has <gasps> two daughters, what? age three and four. How did they not see yeah. during the first birth? No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> did she have this so, condition throughout, like, her whole life? It didn't just develop after she had her kids? Yeah, I think, you know, she would have to, because I don't know how you suddenly just get another yeah. womb. Uh, but <laughs> no. I'm no doctor, so. <laughs> uh, so she says, with my second baby, they said that I might have a bicornuate uterus, which means it's not fully formed. So when I went for this scan, I was really surprised to learn that I have two of them. So not only did she think she might not have a complete uterus, she has two of them. Right. Oh and <laughs> she says, I just thought with classical uh, British understatement, God, that's a shock. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and she says, it makes you feel incredibly grateful that this happened to you and you get to have two amazing babies. Well, that's nice. I mean, so, so I mean, I assume yeah. the babies are healthy, like everything's going well, other than the fact that there's two of them in a separate uterus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the doctors have told Fairhurst, uh, who lives in Braintree, Essex, that she might have two separate labors. And the plan <gasps> is for her to have both of the babies by cesarean oh, section. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to go through a natural labor like that. That seems like it's just asking for trouble. Oh, boy. Yeah, my brain is breaking <laughs> just trying to think about <laughs> what that would look like. Well, in the tradition of all siblings and twins, they'd be fighting for who got to go first. I mean, it's, you know, you're there trying you to go. shove yeah. your way out the door. <laughs> so it, it says that Professor Asma Khalil, who is an expert in obstetrics at St. George's Hospital in London, says that this condition is very rare. A lot of women who have abnormalities in the uterus don't even know, she said. She added that this was a case even with women who had had babies because the shape of the womb changed during pregnancy, and so the condition can be missed in scans. Hmm. The egg and sperm at a very early stage split into two, so it depends which egg attaches to which uterus. Hmm. Two separate labors from... That's just... I cannot imagine what kind of pain that would... Yeah, no, C-section sounds like the right way to go, for sure. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> we are out of time for today. We're glad you've joined us. We hope you come back next week. Some of the articles we did not get to today, French Revolution remains discovered in walls of Paris Monument, the FBI agents who return stolen cultural artifacts, and what are those glowing orbs that dart across the sky the world over? So that and many, many more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like the work we're doing, we always appreciate your support. You can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 